Hey listeners, we decided to do another library release. And if you're interested in our library release content, you can check us out on Patreon where you can see all of our back episodes through a special RSS link. Thanks for your support. Hope you enjoy the episode. I'd like to give a shout out to a couple new patrons that have joined us on the Patreon platform, Renee S. and Brandon S. Thank you for your support. We greatly appreciate it. It's going to help us continue to make great content. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your hosts, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. And on this episode, we are going to be talking with Carlo de Jesus, Director of Marketing Communications for Amarim Cork. And I think it's really interesting because Cork is really one of the last winemaking decisions that a winemaker can make for a bottle of wine in terms of how he's going to seal it. So I'm looking forward to hearing from Carlos. Welcome to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for having me. I was wondering if you give us a brief overview of Amarim and your role there. Well, Amarim is a company that celebrates this year 150 years, so so much for the big plan to celebrate that we had. So we're all out the window, of course. But we are the largest core company in the world, by far, several times bigger than our next competitor. And I run the marketing and the communications for the company's stopper division. And that's a division that you're responsible for putting out in the market 5.5 billion stoppers every year. So just to give people a little bit of context, does Amarim own the forest or do they buy from farmers? What's the whole process of sourcing the cork material like for a company like Amarim? Right. We source our raw material from thousands and thousands of forest owners, property owners, small property owners, large property owners. And this is basically the sourcing occurs mainly in Portugal because Portugal is also the largest producing country in the world. So it makes sense that it is so. And also in Spain, which from an ecosystem point of view, it's actually more of a continuum. So it does not make much of a difference despite the political border between one country and the other. Interesting. And so we know cork is used for wine stoppers as wine people, of course, but it's also used for a broad range of things. Could you give us a sense of that range of things that the cork bark is used for? And is wine the highest value? Cork is being used in many, many different applications since the Egyptians. There are some records actually in ancient Egypt, and certainly the Romans used a lot of cork in applications that range from situations connected to wine, definitely, but it could be sandals, it could be fishing and tackle objects because cork floats. But thousands of years later, stoppers and wine is still the biggest generator of value and revenue for both the company and for the forest owners. But today, applications of cork can range. Ironically, we still use that for footwear and some of the largest brands. At some point, I think all the big brands did some kind of footwear in with cork in it from Nike to, of course, the Birkenstocks that we're all very familiar with to the big designer names, the Christian Dior's, the Dolce & Gabbana's, you name it, because of its flexibility. And that flexibility, that incredible cell structure, very unique cell structure, also makes for great applications for the aerospace and defense industries, for flooring, for some sports, actually. Baseballs can have a core of cork, despite the fact that the bats cannot, which is a bit of an iron. In fields also, we can actually replace that pesky gluten pieces of rubber that you have on the infields in a sports stadium with cork granules. And you can drop the surface temperature in the summer by as much as 10 degrees Celsius. And that has a big impact in terms of the absence of injuries on sports people. 
but mainly uh, you're replacing your pollutants with something natural. Interesting. So switching back to wine closures, obviously there's been a lot of innovation on different types of closures and cork being obviously one of the most tried, trusted, and true. I wonder if you could give a brief differentiator between screw crap and plastic closures, glass closures, and amalgamated corks to help understand the differences for using a cork. Well, I mean, you need a whole podcast just for that. But <laughs> trying to summarize, I think the big difference nowadays is threefold, is what it is that from a technical point of view, helps the winemaker make his or her wine evolve in the right direction. Second, what is and what is not a truly sustainable option. And third, what is that generates more value added along the trade? And I think Quark ticks all the right boxes when you talk to each one of these issues. Another big difference that you have, and getting into more technical aspects of the whole this, is that cork comes from an oak, just as barrels come from an oak. So we need to understand more, but one of the interesting questions actually was, okay, so if someone spends $1,000 on a barrel because it adds something to the wine, because it comes from an oak and you have tannins and you have you know, all these antioxidants and all this stuff, what about cork? Cork coming from an oak, that small little disc of cork in contact with the wine over five, 10, 15, 50, or 60 years. Does anything happen? Are we dreaming? So we did look into that, and the results are quite interesting, actually. And another important aspect is, of course, the what it's known as OTR, the oxygen transfer rate. Wine, like any of us listening to this podcast, is essentially a very complex, ongoing chemical reaction. And as such, we've known for a couple hundred of years that any given oxygen reaction gets shaped by the amount of oxygen that it has access or does not have access. So different closures have different OTRs, different closures do shape the evolution of wine in one direction and the other. And the big role of it, of course, it's about oxygen. So cork seems to be sitting, if you want to look at a continuum of oxygen ingress that in one extreme of too much oxygen, which has been associated to the plastics. And not enough oxygen or reduction in the opposite end of the spectrum, which is associated with screw caps. Cork seems to be standing in that Goldilocks zone right in the middle where it does impart some oxygen, but not too little, not too much. And that's the sole reason why everybody that fell in love with wine fell in love with wine opening a bottle that had a cork in it because cork does allow that evolution in the right direction that winemakers have been searching however elusive it may be, but thousands and thousands of winemakers over decades and decades and decades have been searching. Cork allows for that to happen. From what I understand, Carlos, the cork, when you push the cork into the bottle, it basically squeezes a little bit of the air residing in the cork into it and then becomes a fairly closed system and doesn't allow much oxygen ingress until and unless the cork starts to degrade and some might seep through the sides over a few decades or something like that, depending on the quality of the cork. How does that compare to some of the other products out there? Like, I think the problem with plastics is that the elasticity is not as good, right? And so you have seepage through the sides mostly and not through the cork or through the stopper. Whereas like the screw caps, they can allow a certain amount of oxygen in theoretically over time. And that would, I guess, just consistently give you oxygen, which is a different method than if you have a natural cork in there. 
The screw caps, a lot depends on the liner that it's used. The screw cap, the aluminum itself, is essentially a delivery mechanism for a layer of plastics and or metals that are inserted in it. So in a lot of ways, the screw cap is also a plastic stopper. That's a bit of the irony of all this. But it's an external closure, which is very different premise than a plastic stopper being inserted inside a bottle. I think when you look at how does that compare to cork, I think that unique cellular structure that you have in a cork, and to give our listeners an idea, an average cork can pack, on average, 800 million cells. 800 million cells that not only have an elastic memory that lasts for decades and decades, and that's why when you squeeze it and insert it in a bottle, they immediately try to get back to its original size. That's also the reason, by the way, why it works so well in a pair of Birkenstocks. But also, each one of those cells carries a little bit of oxygen in each one of them. When you reach that absolutely critical moment of inserting a stopper inside a bottle, which is a very stressful moment for the cork, for the bottle, even for the jaws in the machine, etc. When you reach that moment, the jaws are going to squeeze the cork, the piston is going to push the cork inside the bottle, and that oxygen inside each one of those 800 million cells, part of it is going to be expelled upwards, meaning out of the bottle, but some of it is going to be squeezed into the wine. After that, cork, ironically, becomes so close. It's such a sturdy barrier against everything else that it's outside the wine that it's ineffectively protecting that wine. It protects the wine, for example, against environmental contamination, which could, by the way, be TCA or a lot of other things. And that is not observed in any of the other closures. And I think if you want to understand or begin to understand why cork is so special, you absolutely have to go back to nature and realize that it's an incredibly intelligent mechanism to use air and oxygen to originally protect a tree from forest fires, for example, and that we have harnessed that to create an effective protective barrier against TCA, against the stopper, assuming, of course, that no TCA is present. So you just mentioned TCA. Maybe you could talk to us a little bit about the evolution of that. I think a lot of People who criticize cork bring that up as one of the elements that there is sometimes in a small percent embedded TCA in there. But I think the cork industry has done a lot in the last couple of decades to really eliminate the causes of that. And it's a much smaller issue now than it was 20 or 30 years ago. I think so. And I think that's the only reason why cork has been regaining market share worldwide since about 2009, 2010. It's not just in the fact that it's a much more environmental responsible choice. It's also because from a technical point of view, it makes more and more sense. You have a problem curve for cork that started to go down 20 years ago. Today, the problem, we have defeated TCA. I have no doubt whatsoever in saying that. While simultaneously, you have a problem curve for artificial stoppers that is going up. The intersection of those two curves happened a lot sooner than most people thought possible, but it happened. So what has been done is essentially understanding what the 246-trichloroanisole molecule means. That's TCA for short, of course. And we have to understand, first of all, that TCA is naturally occurring. It's innocuous, but it's naturally occurring. And while cork has a, an affinity for it, I wish cork was the only thing where you could find TCA in this world. My life in the last 10 years would have been a lot easier. I can tell you that. But 
You can find it in coffee. When you hear the expression Rio Taint, that's lingo for TCA in the coffee industry. Rio is in Rio de Janeiro, in Brazilian city, of course. You can find it in beer. There's a North American brewer that uh, a few years ago had a massive TCA problem. You can find it in tap water. The Melbourne tap water is actually quite interesting because it's an environmental contamination issue more than anything else. The irony of all this is that we are seeing the end of TCA in cork, but we are not seeing the end of TCA in wine. And you can certainly find TCA in many other instances. You can find it in barrels, you can find it in the pumps in the wineries, you can find it in plastics, and you can find it in screw caps. You can find it in the cartons of it. You can find it in the wood pellets. There is a couple of well-known cases, in, mainly in the U.S., where environmental contamination led to wineries building brand new facilities because of that. So I think today we have a completely different scenario, a completely different territory in terms of the technical aspects than anyone thought possible. And mind you, Tanner, the Swiss scientist that first published on TCA, didn't do so until I think it was the mid or late 80s. The new plants that we launched to deal with that, including a plant that it's about the size of 11 football fields, we launched that plant in 2000 and its twin plant in 2001. You don't come up with a plant that it's the size of 11 football fields in 2000 because in December 99, someone thought it was a good idea. It took years and years and years. But the cork industry had a problem. Anything and everything that we could be doing would not be seen, would not be felt by the wine trade or the consumers until years later. Part of it's the very nature of the beast. Remember, we are dealing with something that is measured in parts per trillion, in nanograms. Today, our quality control cutoff point is as low as half of a nanogram. I tried to wrap my mind around that, so I asked the scientists here to give me a real-world <laughs> example of what, what does that mean. And someone told me that it's about the equivalent of finding a drop of water in 800 Olympic-sized swimming pools. And by the way, Robert and Peter, we can do that today in seconds with a cork-by-cork cork reliability that it's so high that actually we have more than an insurance company willing to underwrite that claim that we make. And I think if you want a measurement of how much we have moved forward, I think comparing that to the quality control in the pharmaceutical industry, for example, which is in parts per billion, that is quote-unquote easy. But to do this in half of a part per trillion in seconds with reliability, I think one day, not yet, but I think one day we ought to look back and see that as a good moment for both the wine and the cork industry. It's interesting because I feel like a lot of times consumers essentially lump in all faults as cork. But in fact, there's many reasons that they maybe can't discern the fault and just attribute it to the cork. Well, yes, we are a little bit like the butler in an Agatha Christie book. Who done it? Ah, the butler did. And sometimes, yeah, he was the butler. But we know today that it's not like that. We know today that issues such as bread, for example, occur at an incredibly higher percentage than cork does. I mean, today, I'm a little bit reluctant in throwing percentages because there are hundreds of cork companies out there. Not all have the same resources, not all have the same strategy, not all have the same approach to this. But within Amrim, TCA is probably the sixth or the seventh cause of concern for us today. We have more complaints that have to do, for example, with the visual quality of the cork 
because it's a very subjective issue. And then we have TCA. TCA is, in practical terms, is defeated. In mid-November this year, we're going to make an announcement about achieving non-detectability, for example, not just in the microagglomerate corks. Amarin is the largest producer of microagglomerate corks because last year we already made about 1.5, 1.6 billion corks came out with a guarantee, a non-detectable TCA guarantee. But we want to do that not just for the microagglomerate and for the high-end natural cork stoppers, but all of the cork stoppers. We're never going to see a V-Day moment in this war. It will never end, but I think that will be the closest thing to a V-Day moment. Along those same lines, I think a lot of people, and you're addressing some of this already, but a lot of people who criticize corks talk about the lack of consistency of corks as a closure because it is a natural product, right? It's a tree, and each tree grows slightly differently. Could you help explain that to us a little bit? Again, we have to bear in mind that different companies have different approaches to the different issues with different resources. There are, to give you an idea, 267 members of the Portuguese Cork Association. We are one of 266 other producers. So I don't presume to speak on behalf of all of them, but I think consistency in natural whole cork stoppers, the stoppers that go to the wines that we want to more often than not buy and drink, I think you had definitely some consistency issues in the microagglomerate and the technically stoppers like the twin top, for example, or the neutral cork. No, that was never an issue. The reason why you call them technical stoppers is because there is a high degree of technological intervention. They are a very, very smooth product. The natural whole cork stoppers carved as a single piece from that amazing bark that comes from that unique tree, which is the cork oak, then you can have some issues definitely. But technology can come to the rescue. One of the things that I'm probably more proud of the work that Amarin has been doing is the ability to grab nature, to grab that incredibly complex, unique cellular structure that I was telling you about and wrap technology around that. Some of the most successful products in the history of the world are products that mix very, very well nature and technology, if you think about it. And definitely nature gave us something absolutely unique. Environmental contamination created this TCA problem more than anything else. So nature gave it, people kind of destroyed it a little bit, and then we have to bring back technology to help nature. And look at the problems that the world is facing today. And I bet that from the top of our heads, we can mention five, six, ten problems in nature that have to be fixed by technology. So in a lot of ways, our blueprint is maybe with just TCA, maybe the silver lining is that, is that it gave us the ability to, first of all, we got the proverbial kick in the pants from the artificial stoppers, no doubt about it. But the silver lining here, meaning we got the technology to come and rescue something beautiful that was coming from nature, and that was being destroyed. If that does not resonate with Everybody listening to this podcast, I don't know what would, because you guys are in California, you know how things are. If you are in Oregon or in Washington or in the south of Europe, the problem is exactly the same. So I think that's a good transition into your second point about quarks, about them being sustainable. And as I was, Peter and I were doing research for the podcast, I didn't realize that quarks have a really strong beneficial to the overall, like, cradle to grave CO2 footprint or carbon footprint of a bottle of wine. And I was wondering if you could talk about that, because I don't know that that's something that everybody understands or processes, but it's definitely 
something that is very current topic around any of our food sources to understand like what is the imprint of carbon on our consumables? Carbon is certainly important and carbon has literally and figuratively captured everybody's imagination. And that's a good thing. But we must never forget that even if we were able to fix the CO2 problem today, tomorrow we would still have a major sustainability problem around the world. So we have to be mindful of the CO2 impact. And Korg has a great story to tell because some stoppers can retain as much as 562 grams of CO2 per stopper, per unit, per bottle. And when you buy a bottle of wine that has that kind of performance, then you're making a direct, measurable, demonstrable contribution to something. Your option was a good option to buy that wine with that cork. But we have a lot of other issues that we need to also start talking about, and sooner rather than later, hopefully. Cork oaks are a native species from the Western Mediterranean Basin. They have been around for millions and millions of years. They're very, very successful, despite being in very difficult situations most of the time, because let's face it, it's Portugal, Spain, France, Italy, but also Algeria, Tunisia, and Morocco. So I'm sure it's not easy for an oak to thrive for millions and millions of years in such difficult circumstances. But it plays an absolutely crucial role in doing something that a lot of people think is an utopia, and it's not. The cork forests and the products that make those forests viable are a wonderful blueprint that demonstrates that balancing people, planet, and profits, it's not an utopia. It happens, it exists, it exists for decades and decades and decades in this Western Mediterranean region. Portugal technically is not a Mediterranean country, but it's the same region, certainly. And this balancing of the economic issues with the environmental issues and the social issues takes shape in the Montado, which is the name in Portuguese that we give for the cork forest, and in really, really wonderful ways. i give you an example. Harvesting cork is the best paid agricultural job in the world. It can be as much as 125, 135 euros a day during three months only, mind you. But, and to make the math easier on everybody listening to us, just imagine 100 euros a day even. And if you multiply that by three, four, five people from the same family unit, multiply it by three months, what you have, it's a very, very powerful injection of cash that it's going to fix that family to the land. All the cities in the world have too many people. All the countryside in the world does not have enough people. You want to change that? You better start finding examples like this one because we need more of those examples. And Cork does that. It's a highly skilled job. The tree is a slow-growing tree. You cannot touch a tree until the tree is about 25 years old. And then you can only harvest it every nine years. This is crazy, but that's how it is. Carlos, just so I can understand, you said some cork stoppers have a sink of 562 grams of CO2 per stopper. Is that a product of the tree absorbing oxygen for nine or 10 years that go into that one stopper? Or how does that come about? Yes, essentially, the answer is yes. It's the retention made possible by this slow growing. And remember, we never cut down cork oaks. It's illegal to cut down cork oaks. In Portugal, it's illegal since the 1200s, you mentioned that. So the fact that these trees are long-living trees, 200, 230, 250 years, uh, some trees that are estimated to be over 400, but that's equivalent to finding someone that's 100 and 
five years old or something like that. They exist, but they're not the norm. But easily 200, 250 years. But it's also a function, and this is perhaps even the most important part, is that the Montado, the, the cork forests are an ecosystem of different species. This is not a monoculture. On the contrary, this is a living ecosystem. It's one of the 36 hotspots of biodiversity around the world, by the way. So the fact that these property owners have a good revenue, a good source of revenue for that crop makes that crop incredibly important because it's a native species. It provides well-paid agricultural jobs. It is one of the 36 hotspots of biodiversity in the world that I was telling you about. And crucially, fights forest fires and regulates the water cycles and prevents desertification. Water is going to be one of the most important aspects. I think that soon we'll be discussing, hopefully not, but perhaps as much vehemency as we discuss CO2 today, we'll probably be discussing water also. And again, every time you open that bottle and it has a cork on it, we are making a direct, measurable, demonstrable contribution to maintain this story alive. So it's not just about the technical aspects of wine. It's also about the technical aspects of wine that comes with a great ribbon wrapped around it that demonstrates what I think is one of the most dangerous fallacies in our world today, which is the fallacy that balancing people, planet, and profits, it's an utopia. It's not. It can be done. It's not easy. But the blueprint is there, and wine plays a pivotal role in maintaining that alive. And from the consumer perspective, in terms of the last mile, in terms of where that cork ends up, the corks are compostable, recyclable, both? Both. Corks are certainly compostable. You can grind corks, for example, and use that as mulch easily. We've done a very interesting project. We direct wines, Lathwaite's in the UK. US consumers will not know them, but they are actually the suppliers of some of the largest wine clubs in this country and airlines, etc. But they have a recycling program in the UK. They grab those corks, grind them, and they use them as mulch in their UK vineyards. Because as you probably know, UK wine is on the rise. And this is just one example, but you can certainly use your compostable box that many of us have at home, and you can certainly use that. But it is 100% recyclable. The only thing that we cannot do is another cork stopper. But all the applications that we're talking about, we can be sending those cork stoppers that you sent us to recycle literally up into the space. That's one of their applications. It could be, again, in flooring. It could be in toys. You name it. There's a bunch of other things that can be done with it. In the United States, where you have the second largest cork recycling program in the whole world, it's called the Recork America. If you go to recorkamerica.org, you can learn a lot about that. This is definitely a success. And today you have recycling programs in France, in Italy, in Portugal, certainly in South Africa, even Australia, where one of the enclosures of the zoo of one of the major cities was actually funded partially by the Girl Scouts collecting corks and selling them back. So don't throw away that cork if you can avoid it. If you go on the internet, there's just a million little and not so little applications of things you can do with your cork. I'm really going to have to take that quote and tell that to my fiance because she always wants me to throw away the corks and I keep trying to collect them and say they have value. <laughs> no, don't, don't. You have to buy one of those cork holders. And actually, I know people in different countries, this is not a Portuguese thing, but I know people in different countries that they keep the corks from their most momentous occasions. And I think that encompass is something that only now I think we're starting to understand. And 
I give you an example. You cannot. But if you could run a poll around the world, no matter what age group, gender, religion, it doesn't matter. You go around the world and you ask everybody, okay, so give me examples of happy sounds. I bet you that that pop will be one of those. Sounds like a good survey. <laughs> we need to run a survey. It's a great survey. <laughs> oh, but think about it. How many other aspects in our daily lives do you have nowadays that carry that message so strongly across countries, across borders, across, like I said, everything, religion, gender. And in the day and age where we need more dialogue, we need a lot more common touch points for all of us. Wine, again, also brings that to the table and cork brings that to the table. And if you want to understand why a bottle in the United States, speaking of surveys, Robert, one of the interesting data points that we've seen recently is Nielsen Track Scan data of the 100 most sold brands in the U.S. And this, by the way, is also applicable to other countries, not just in the U.S. But the average price of a wine with cork is consistently higher than a bottle that has other types of stoppers. And if you want to create an image for that value added, I think that sound, that pop, that it's recognizable across the world brings value to this proposition. I mean, I'm sorry, but it's certainly better than a metallic crackling of a screw cap. (laughs) (laughs) The pop is definitely good. When we could actually be and work together in offices, I remember when I was working in Silicon Valley, Friday afternoons, I would pop a cork and all the people in the offices and cubicles around me would start to come over to (laughs) have a glass. (laughs) It's the bearer of good news. And if you think of the very champagne or the very sparkling experience, I mean, think about it. Think about it. You're going to open a bottle of champagne or a bottle of a great wine in a very special occasion, and you remove that sensory aspect, that haptic aspect of cork. It would not be the same. And I think, again, it's not just the sustainability or the technical aspect. It's also what it brings or not to the table. So, Peter, either you have to spend more money in wines to get better corks, or you need to explain all of this to your fiancé. That's right. You mentioned the third principle of cork was around more value add along the value chain. Was that what you were talking about in terms of consumer preference and the enjoyment it brings? Or were there other things you were thinking as well? Well, I was thinking about the experience. Listen, packaging is important in every single industry that we can think of. Why on earth would wine be the single exception to all of this? It's not. It matters. It matters in the bottle. It matters in the label. No one would question this. Why would you question the rest of the packaging? So I think, listen, the problem is not the screw caps. Well, the plastics, I think, single-use plastics make no sense. And today, every year around the world, about 1.8, 1.9 billion times, Someone opens a bottle with a single-use plastic stopper in it. It makes no sense. And that same person, by the way, can be going on and on on a rant about plastic bags for five minutes, and he doesn't realize a plastic bag is not as bad as a plastic stopper on the wine. But anyway, snide remarks aside, that aspect is certainly absolutely fundamental. So in talking about plastic stoppers, I mean, it seems like, and even Stealth and Seals, it seems like one of the main drivers of that would have been cost back in the day, but now, I mean, like, what is the range of a price of an individual cork? I mean, it seems like it can really run the gamut, but I think of them as more on a premium end, but I've heard there's actually lower end cost comparable things to these plastic closures and screw tops. The price of cork stoppers reflect the myriad of price points that you have in the world of wine. 
So you can have a cork stopper that can be as high as three euros a unit or as low as four or five cents a unit. But again, and everything in between, but that only reflects the price points that you have in the world of wine, where a bottle can cost, well, not in the United States, but in Europe, can cost three or four euros a bottle and you still have a reasonable wine or it can be a thousand dollars a bottle. But as a rule of thumb, cork traditionally was not cheaper than plastic and certainly not as a screw cap, which is the cheapest of all the options available today. If you ask me what is more expensive, well, it depends. What is more expensive? Is it a car or a motorcycle? Normally it's a car, but it depends on the motorcycle and it depends on the car. It's a little bit like that. So today what we have is the ability to go to any winery. And we served about 18,000 wineries around the world. And we can go to each one of them and say, there is not a single reason today why you would prefer a plastic stopper over a cork stopper or even a screw cap, not even cost. In some circumstances, not all the time, not everywhere, certainly, because it's one thing to carry a stopper to Spain or to France, which is next door or, or all the way to Australia. But today, we can certainly, in some circumstances, undercut the prices of plastic, absolutely. And that was only possible because of innovation, because of technology, because of new products, because of our ability to use cork that traditionally would not be used for the wine stopper because its thickness was not big enough to punch a cork out of it. But today, you can use that either in discs for champagne or for the twin tops, or we can certainly, if nothing else can be done, we can grind it and use that as the shanks for the microglomerates or for the twin tops. So that brought a lot more raw material availability, which is important if you consider that, again, it's a very, very slow-growing tree. You, a tree that will not produce cork good enough for a natural whole cork stopper before 43 years. So a lot of the times you have a humble cork in a humble wine, but don't forget that that cork might have almost half a century of growth and care behind it. So when someone pays, say, three euro for a single cork, which obviously when you're just talking about a cork doesn't sound crazy, but when you're multiplying it by the whole production line of a first growth chateau that adds up or whatever wine you're going to put those in, are they paying for more guarantee in terms of the quality of that cork or reduction in terms of like faults and things like that? What does that premium get them besides a prettier looking cork? What you said is true, but bear in mind that in many of the instances, three euros on the overall scheme of things in a bottle that costs 500, it's not going to weigh as much as four or five cents in a bottle that costs 10 bucks. So we have that issue, that issue there. But when you go to the very, very high end, you're getting a lot of technology, certainly. I was mentioning a while ago, individual Cork by cork control analysis. You can imagine how much that costs. So, you know, we have it's an added service that is certainly included in there. But you're also buying an incredible complex, probably the most complex valve that exists in the world. You're buying a 54 millimeter in length, absolutely perfect look, absolutely perfect cellular structure and no breaks in that cellular structure. It's difficult to find. I mean, think of it like in diamonds where you have to take out tons and tons of dirt to find that little perfect diamond in the middle of all that. It's not very different when you think of the amount of cork 
that has to be harvested for us to find those little gems. So there's also availability demand. Again, I'm not a supply side guy, I can assure you that. But uh, yeah, supply and demand still shape a lot of the decisions. So you don't have a lot of those. And there is fierce competition for, especially when they come with that kind of non-detectable PCA performance that today we can give. But different horses for different courses. You don't necessarily need to use a $3 cork on all wines. On the contrary, TCA performance, for example, every single preventative or curative TCA measure that we have in place is applicable to a four or five cent stopper as it is applicable to a three euro stopper. There is no difference whatsoever. Think of it in terms of the auto industry. You cannot expect to have a V8 engine for the same price as a four-cylinder diesel car. You know The performance is not going to be the same, but both cars need to brake when <laughs> you put your foot to the pedal. And in a lot of ways, funny enough, not that I said that, I think Cork, I said it was the world's most complex and sophisticated valve which I think it is, but it's also very keen to the brakes in a car. You don't know who made the brakes in your car. You have no idea. You buy a brand car, but who made the brakes? Who knows? You don't care. They're there every day, day in, day out, doing its job, saving you, probably without you even noticing, but you don't care about it unless they fail. And then it's going to be a big issue. But from a consumer point of view, I'm looking at my computer that has a sticker here that says Intel Core seven, nine, whatever it is. I wish all cork stoppers could have clearly branded or could have on the label saying this cork comes from Amrit, like this guy, this computer manufacturer did with the processor. If we reach that stage, and we are getting there, actually, we didn't see a lot of wineries wanting to talk about the fact that they use Amarin's Tech stoppers, for example, in press releases, on the labels, etc. But that's very, very good news. And it certainly shows that we are heading in that direction. One day, we'll get there. But until now, as you said, for a lot of people, a cork is a cork is a cork. And nothing could be further from the truth nowadays. It's hundreds and hundreds of millions of euros that Amarin alone has invested. And size, in this case, matters. You need science to defeat anything measured in nanograms. And science costs a lot of money. So you better have the balance sheet that it's necessary to defeat something measured in parts per trillion. So that's where we are. But on the other hand, of the 18,000 customers I told you about, the vast majority of those customers are small wineries. They're not the big wine. So we can supply that kind of quality to the big guys as much as to the small guys. What does not make sense is for a winery to think that, oh, you know, Amarin too big for me. That makes no sense. It's like if you have to buy fighter planes, are you going to buy your fighter planes from the smallest producer, the cheapest producer? No, you want. If you're running the Pentagon, you want the best. But if you're running a small country, you also want the best when it comes to that. So technology today is an integral part of that proposition called natural court. And again, it's a balance between nature and technology that I think gives us the blueprint uh, where to go next. One of the reasons I asked about the premium pricing question for guarantees, it seems like the Diam Cork has really leveraged the pre-mock situation in Burgundy to really get some market share with some white Burgundy producers, and then it's kind of spread. I mean, they've really seem to have tried to capitalize, even though it's not a TCA problem per se, they seem to capitalize on what is perceived as a fault that is partially potentially related to closure or to winemaking. There's a lot of things there, but for whatever reason, they've gained a lot of traction in that area, talking about 
how their stopper is a little different. I think if you look at the actual figures, and I wish you and Peter could see the figures that we see and the world could see the figures that we see, that's not really the case. I'm sorry, it's a case that they got a lot of traction, yes. But is that replacement actually happening? That's a different story. Listen, the Primox issues, and Peter probably know this from the top of your head, but I think the first issue was the 93 and the 95 vintages. And Cork, again, was a little bit like the butler we were talking about, and who done it well? Cork did. It's difficult to explain. If you go back to those 1990s vintages that show the Primox, and this is where it all started, it's obviously impossible that different suppliers in different countries to different wineries all made exactly the same mistake in those exact vintages only in that wine region. And no, I mean, again, if you think of police work, that would not hold water. And of course, we would, Cork is not responsible. Primox comes from a whole host of reasons. Sometimes they come together, sometimes they came two of them. And mind you, cork can indeed be responsible for oxidation. Yes, absolutely. All you need is to have a mismatch between the dimensions of the cork and the dimensions of the glass bottleneck. And let's face it, making glass is not exactly a precise science. All you have is half a millimeter difference. Today, we don't process a stopper order without getting an internal bottleneck profile analysis something we did not do before. But I think we need to go further than that. We cannot just blame the peroxides in cork because peroxides have a half-life that it simply doesn't add up. That 15 years later, you open a bottle and the peroxides, peroxides after 24 hours are pretty much neutral and it takes more than that to ship corks from Portugal to France. So we work with the CIVC B, sorry, CIVC B, to get that information out. We work with our customers and the local clients and I think the reason why you don't hear that much about it today is because everybody on both sides starts to understand a lot better what was going on. And let's face it, do all those wines need to be open 20 years later? Maybe some of those wines shouldn't be open 20 years later. But that's a question that I leave to the consumers. It's not my role to discuss that. Sorry. Carlos, you mentioned earlier that the tree needs to grow for at least 43 years before you can get a natural cork out of it or a cork that can be used for a wine closure. When you think about from a business planning perspective and the cork business and industry as a whole with these sort of more than generational, this is like longer than many vineyard lifetimes even, how do you think about the supply and demand planning for that when demand for wine has grown and risen dramatically in the last 20 years, which is less than the time it would take to plant new cork trees in order to supply enough corks for those bottles. You have around the Western Mediterranean Basin 2.2 million hectares, not acres, hectares of cork forests. So in practical terms, never a bottle of wine was stopped with something else other than cork because there was not the cork stopper available to stop that bottle. That never happens and will never happen. Again, part of it because of innovation, technology, but it certainly does not happen. I think it's a very good question because almost half a century of planning ahead, it's not easy. I think the growth of wine consumption around the world has not been that massive in the last few years, unfortunately. But again, when you have to think that 0.81, growth rate a year on the basis of almost 19.5 billion bottles, even a 0.8 growth rate after a few years becomes another country. 
just on itself. So the numbers are tremendous. And to give our listeners an idea of those 19.5 billion bottles that are filled and stopped every year with something, about 12.5, a little bit more nowadays than that, are stopped with cork. So more or less seven out of every 10 bottles around the world are stopped with cork today. But I think whatever it is that you want to be see being done 20 or 30 years from now, you have to start working on that today. And at the current growth rates and the expected growth rates for cork, cork, to give everybody an idea, the exports of cork from Portugal alone have been outpacing the growth of wine consumption around the world about two and a half, three to one. So at this pace, in 20, 25 years, we would be facing a shortage of the quality cork that we want. And there's no way on earth that having gone through all the TCA problems, we're going to die on the beach. So we couldn't do that. So we bought, and again, the company is 150 years this year. And last year, for the first time, we bought a plot of land, a cork forest. Not because we're going to stop being an industrial company and becoming an agricultural company, not at all. But because we wanted to show everybody that you could shorten those incredibly long time frames without having to resort to DNA magic of any sort. So we look into a very interesting case of a forest owner in the south of Portugal that planted an olive grove. And because by law you cannot cut down the cork oaks, he had several cork oaks in this part of the property where he was going to plant the olive trees, and he was going to micro-irrigate the olive trees. And the cork oaks were just there. Whatever. Not an issue for the next nine years or ten years. And suddenly, well, suddenly a few years later, he noticed that rather than having to wait the expected 25 years for the cork trees to reach the ratio between height and circumference, that it's required by law to be able to be harvested, it was not 25 years, it was 10 years, 11 years, and they're already on the spot. So it's like a miracle. We got down there very quickly, as you can imagine, and we had to understand what happened from a scientific point of view. So we started a research project, an R&D project with a university that probably is a university in, in Portugal where the biggest knowledge of cork oak forest resides today. And we asked them to figure this out. So being such a slow growth tree, basically the tree is doing a great job in managing the very little resources that may exist. When you start micro-irrigating the land around it, the tree thinks that, whoa, I mean, this is jackpot. I don't need to grow this slowly. I can speed things up. One year, because maybe the second year things change. So for one year, the tree grows faster. Second year can still grow faster. And all of a sudden, the tree is tricked into thinking that those resources are illimited and starts growing much, much faster. We have a problem. If you give the tree all the resources that the tree could consume, the same thing happens to us when, you know, it happened to me when you get married, you know, you start eating a little bit too much. Maybe you shouldn't be. And rather than being, you know, that shape, svelte, cork oak, the cork starts getting very spongy. And that is absolutely the opposite of what you want. That incredible cellular structure that I was telling you about in the beginning, you don't want to mess with that. So the trick here was to understand 
when and how and how much resources you should give the tree during that initial 25-year growth cycle. So micro-irrigation works if you give the tree some water at the precise point on that 25-year curve. If you do that, the tree reaches that ratio of height and circumference that I was telling you about much sooner, not 25 years, but 10 to 12 years. And this changes everything. Afterwards, you continue to be able to harvest the cork only every nine years. But that's not the problem. The problem is if you want to make that native species that has this incredible positive repercussion in the environment to remain viable as an investment, you can't go to an investor nowadays and say, hey, I have an idea for you, business idea, great thing. You open a hole on the ground, you put your investment in there, and you wait 43 years before it yields something interesting. This is romantic, but no one is going to do that, let's face it. So what are you going to do? You're going to invest in something like eucalyptus, for example. And then you have the terrible forest fires that Portugal had two years ago. In California, in October of two years ago, I flew from the forest fires in Napa to the forest fires in Portugal. It was crazy. I know it's crazy this year, but it was crazy that year also. And unfortunately, it seems to be crazy and crazier every year. But we had to give people a business proposition that would allow a native species to be competitive against what is essentially a monoculture from an invasive species. Now, Peter and Robert, think about that for a second. You can literally and figuratively change the landscape from something that is creating a lot of problems because there's no biodiversity, there's no high-paid agricultural jobs, there's no water cycle regulations, and there's certainly no fight against forest fires. You're moving the investment target from that kind of species into a species that is native and belongs where it should be. That sounds like we need to do that in California and the entire West Coast of the U.S. with all the fires we have. <sighs> yeah, well, you know and what? cork trees grow here? <laughs> yeah, I was going to tell you that. Do you know where the jacuzzi winery is? Uh-huh. Yeah. All right, that road, you see some very, very beautiful and big cork oaks in California. UC Davis actually periodically harvests the cork oaks that they have. They have I think Gallo has some cork oaks also in their facilities. And they are beautiful, but Thomas Jefferson, he wrote very interestingly about cork a long, long time ago. And one of the things that he was positing about in one of the letters was that he was defending how the U.S. should plant cork oaks, how the U.S. should have their own supply of cork oaks available stateside. And maybe he was onto something. Yeah, I mean, I've learned a ton about the cork business and cork oaks, and I really appreciate all this great information. Carlos, with every episode when we have a guest, we like to ask them for a wrap-up question and have them identify, what do you think, in relation to wine closures, is a lasting trend versus something that is a fizzling fad, something that is popular now but won't make the long haul? I think the idea that you can replace a natural whole cork stopper with a microglomerate and that nothing changes is akin to say that, well, I can have the best steak in the world or grounded beef and it's exactly the same thing. No, (laughs) I don't think so. I think there's room for both, but they serve different purposes. They carry different everything, images, length. I mean, you're not going to maturate a hamburger of minced meat, let's face it. (laughs) So I think we can go back to other products and draw a lot of that. So I think that 
perception. It's just that. It's a perception. It's a fad. And I think time will be the ultimate judge of those claims. Listen, I can go out and say, hey, I have a great hamburger of minced meat that is going to, you should maturate that for 50 years and it's going to be great. I mean, who's going to be around to demonstrate that it's not true, right? So I think there is one type of stopper that has demonstrated the track record that it's necessary to have the degree of confidence to put your wines for the next 10, 15, 20 years. And that's natural whole cork stopper. So I think a trend that will stick definitely, is the role of natural whole cork stopper. Listen, there is a reason why the harshest of the cork critics in the world fell in love with wine opening a bottle that had a cork stopper in it. Why? That's the interesting question to me. Why is that so? Why is that with all the availability of different options that we have today, and we have had for years and years, decades, different artificial options, why is that seven out of every 10 bottles are still closed with cork. It's not for the lack of options. It's not because winemakers are all dumb. They know the options that are out there. And let me ask you one thing. What is the fastest growing market for cork anywhere in the world? Australia. (laughs) The fatherland of the screw caps is where cork is growing the fastest anywhere in the world. And not just by five or six or 10 or 15%, double that for three years in a row. And this will be the fourth year in a row. Well, with the pandemic, everything is <laughs> up for grabs nowadays, but I think we'll be able to keep that record or get very close to that. But it doesn't matter. Pandemics aside, three years in a row. And I think another interesting question is why? Why are we there today? You're going to ask someone what you prefer between your mouth and your wine, a natural whole cork stopper or a piece of plastic? Uh, You know what the answer is going to be. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I don't save my screw tops or my plastic corks. I always have the corks on those good bottles. (laughs) What kind of market proposition is it that if your winery sells different wines at different price points, what kind of proposition is it that you go to the consumer, your consumer, and you say, you know what, if you cannot afford my best wine, that has a cork in it, well, tough luck. You're going to get a wine with a plastic stopper on top of it. In the 21st century? Seriously? I'm very, very convinced that coherence is the best tool for brands to succeed in the 21st century. We're all going crazy, running around, trying to understand whatever the millennials want, whatever they are. I don't care if they are millennials or centurions. It doesn't matter. They will want coherence. And if you as a wine brand cannot deliver that, you would still sell. But that's not going to be the wine that people get out of bed dreaming of making or writing about or drinking. It's going to be another wine. There's always going to be room for that wine. There has been for a long time, will continue to be. But that's not what people want. Now, that sounds like the lasting trend to me, coherence for the wine brands. I actually think that hit home the most in terms of if you're going to get different closures for different price points of bottles that can leave a weird taste in consumers' mouth. Carlos, I really want to thank you for all your time. This is very informative. We're going to get this together and share this out as quick as possible. But I want to thank you for all your time and all your insights on the cork industry. Much appreciated. Peter, Robert, it was truly, truly a pleasure. Thank you so much for, again, for having me here. And hopefully you can do this again soon. Sounds good. Cheers. All right, guys. Bye. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.